what was the name of the like famous like propaganda voice in Vietnam that was like you know oh. a woman's voice doing the whole like yeah, American GIs go home your families are missing you like that sort of that those broadcasts you know what I'm talking about yeah so I, I guess it was two two women uh, did that there was Soul City Sue mm-hmm. um yeah and then Pyongyang Sally okay. But those were very much just like same sort of thing, though. Where it's you know this voice coming over loudspeakers, yeah. you know, being broadcast on radio channels, just basically saying like, you know, go home, you don't belong here. <laughs> yeah, you, your uh, your leaders have abandoned you. They're you know. Yeah, um, <laughs> and that that kind of happened in World War Two as well, but I don't think it was that same like you know, woman doing, like, a radio broadcast. I mean, there's sexy women propagandists of every era. Okay, well, I think I think that's a good start. Um, <laughs> so, this is the Long Road Podcast. I'm Sasha, and Trevor, and uh, we and have a guest on today, a uh, buddy of mine, Simon, and uh, uh, who's going to tell us about all the sexy women announcers? Yeah, well, all of them. propaganda. Every last one of them. If it were, if it were all, it could take uh, all time. But you know, we've only got <laughs> an hour or so, so you know, we'll we'll try and uh, keep it brief. Uh, yeah, but I think um, there, there there is kind of this like classic idea of propaganda that is either you know um, that sort of like hijacked radio broadcast or you know these like uh, you kind of picture like the large like towers with these cluster of speakers on top on top of vans driving through town just blasting out you know yeah well the, Jones, essentially but <laughs> the the like. <laughs> I feel like the like popular mass understanding of the word propaganda, like really, if you want to be historical, it begins with the book Propaganda by uh, Edward Bernays, which I believe was published in like the 1920s or 1930s originally. Um, yeah, that that's sort of where the term came from. And what it's really describing is, you know, an industrial level of propaganda of an industry that still exists today and is now called public relations because that's a propagandistic move for its own industry. Um, well, that's something we had, like, you know, uh, as far as just kind of the concept of propaganda, it's like way earlier than that, you know, it, it's to propagate messages. I know it arose from, like, the Catholic Church in a way they would actually, like, you know, 
try and have these kind of basically basically like mass information drives to try and be like, hey, this is the church. Yeah. <laughs> well, when when you get into it, it what it's it's about the distribution of information, right? And so power has always controlled the distribution of information. And when power, you know, makes information suit its own interests, that's essentially propaganda because you're you're skewing information to tell a certain picture that might not match reality. And that's always been true throughout all human history, basically. And the thing that's changed over time is the means of distributing information have been democratized greatly, even if they're still privately controlled beyond what most people are you know, thinking about when they like use the internet, for example. Yeah, um, we've, we've come a long way since leaving yeah. the bombings in World War One. Uh, right, but the principles are basically the same. You know, a, a a certain you know type of meme that is just you know a very simple message that's just blasted and reposted over and over again is, you know, the modern leaflet drop. It's the, the same principles at play. And I think you can, you know, look at that and say, well, well, that's not really propaganda because memes are made by, you know, individuals on the internet who are trying to make their own personal message and spread that. But yeah, but memes not... are also made by governments. I mean... And we, <laughs> yeah. we saw that with like Bloomberg's little like half-ass campaign, where Bloomberg was, you know, looking online and trying to find like the best meme lords and have them craft memes for his campaign to, you know. I get, honestly, I think to kind of like catch up with Sanders because Sanders does have like a legitimate grassroots meme you'll, you'll, aware base. You'll never beat volunteer memers. Those are the true <laughs> true bloods of uh, that world. The true memers. Yeah. Yeah. The people who do it because they like doing it are dangerous. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. dangerous. I guess that's the question. That is like, you know, propaganda has a really negative connotation. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's the impression I have of it is that you know, you say like, yeah. oh, well, that that's propaganda. That means it's bullshit, and you should right. ignore it, even if it seems Which popular, is... even if it seems like it has the support from some sort of well, grassroots group or movement. Pe- people just... associate propaganda with manipulation, and people don't like being manipulated or feeling like they're being manipulated, right? And so that's yes. why right. anything that is propaganda has to be you know, built in a way that people can't tell it's propaganda. The most effective stuff you don't know about. Like That's why the military spends so much money funding Marvel films, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, or... Or you make it such a natural part of everyday life uh, that that people don't really even see it as manipulation anymore. That's why the Uh, the government spends so much money funding the NFL. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, like from the outside. from the outside looking in, like North Korea is like the classic textbook example for most Americans. You see how propagandized a culture like that is, but. Every culture has a version of that, just in different levels of extreme, yeah. different beliefs you're committing to. Though I, I think one of the one of the comments I made that uh, you know made us realize, okay, we have to talk about propaganda directly, is that I see American society as the most propagandized society that's ever existed uh, because of the sheer volume of advertising that we're all exposed to every day. Oh because yeah, because you know, advertising has its like explicit message, which is buy this. Um, but then it also has an implicit uh, message, which is that my role in this system is as a consumer, as someone to be sold to and not not somebody who should actively take part. 
Um, if if you can splice in clips to the podcast, you absolutely need to just put in like something from They Live right now. You know, just like the glasses. <laughs> Fresh, vital. The old cynicism is gone. We have faith in our leaders. We're optimistic as to what becomes of it all. It really boils down to our ability to accept. We don't need pessimism. There are no limits. That advertising is absolutely like a crucial part of modern propaganda. And it gets back to Bernays we were talking about earlier. Like the modern advertising industry was directly influenced and descended from all of that stuff. Uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, it's – you see it a lot when we do have these natural disasters. You see it after 9-11 where there's like every ad had American flags in it. You see it now with the current coronavirus stuff where you hear all these – I mean, I was in these ads on the radio yesterday while driving around that were like – in these tough times, we need to come together. We need to support each other as a community. Buy Toyotas. <laughs> oh, my God. I hate them uh, so much. Yeah. I've seen them as if well. I ever ha- if I ever have to hear the phrase, in these uncertain times, oh, again, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, you fuckers are the ones who made it uncertain. Um, have, have you boys, uh, us into the system. You guys ever been to Vermont? Mm-hmm. No. So, Once so briefly one of- years ago. One of the things that is most interesting about Vermont, and you don't notice it at first, but then once you know that this is what it is, you can't stop unseeing it, is billboards are illegal in Vermont. There's no billboards anywhere, so there's no giant advertisements everywhere. It's just like, you know, trees and buildings, you know? My God. It's, 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 (laughs) It's actually... It's, it can be really jarring once you notice it because, you know, you still see like, oh, here's a sign for McDonald's or whatever, mm-hmm. of course, but there's no billboards. It's just life without advertising almost. I feel like, I feel like Sasha is right. having this like, my God, it's full of stars moment. <laughs> oh, it is. It is that too. More, more like I, I, I've always hated advertising um, because I, I've always hated like loud and ruckus noises and just like – so mm-hmm. and advertising uses a lot of like loud noise and lots of like yeah uh, they, they like have, they've had to release laws and- over the years uh, restricting the ability to make ads louder than programming because they always try and do that <laughs> on any platform yeah. <laughs> yeah so they're always like loud in volume and also like loud in their color usage and in just being in your face and i've always hated that about just anything in life well that's the thing and too so, about like, like you know where like with the color choice used for like a lot of like uh fast food brands and stuff like that is this right red yellow um divide because it makes it, it's supposed to be invocative of food it's supposed to make you hungry when you see it um it just also is a very stark contrast which is why it's used by a lot of you know flags for countries having red and yellow on their flag um yeah it's um, but I think uh, that really interesting side of the of that is that um, I'm not alone in feeling this way, uh, which is why, you know, like for, for those of us who like grew up around the turn of the uh, turn of the century, like we had no Internet or we had dial up. And then we've come into this like new era where Internet is now, I think, the primary means of advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a whole like other a whole response to that is the use of ad blockers, um, which which I use prolifically. 
um, in which many other people use prolifically to like get around advertising. And me, so even me though, in, <laughs> yeah, so even though in some ways we have even more propaganda now than we ever have had, um, you know, a lot of people are actually exposed to less of it because they're taking these active protective measures. Well, I think that protects you from a lot of, you know, just straight up advertisements that someone pays for that come through your, you know, your news feed somewhere. But so much of what is like current propaganda is just these kind of peer to peer shared propaganda where it's folks yeah. just putting a meme up on their Facebook that says, oh, I don't know, like it has a picture of uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and just has some snarky thing about her being stupid in it while she's making like a intense stare at somebody and yeah and the thing is it's not i think just that there's this uh overabundance of propaganda but the way that people have started taking these memes as just evidence for whatever argument they want to make there's, there's a right. level of consumption of the propaganda that has changed somehow where people are just seeing the stuff being like well yeah of course like aoc's gotta be stupid because all these memes told me so yeah, yeah. and and i think the paid memes aspect is an important part of that because I think, you know, perspective here is important. Like ad blockers, while super popular within a certain segment of people are actually, you know, we're talking about like less than 5% of all internet users using ad blockers, right? It's, it's very small relative to the total ecosystem because if it weren't, the whole economy of the internet would collapse. It's all running on ad dollars. In fact, you know, you could probably do a whole episode just about how, like, you know, the American economy itself is built on basically advertising and war. And both of those are, you know, manufactured <laughs> industries yeah. that are prime for collapse. So Right. Yeah, we could definitely do an episode on that. <laughs> so so I, I, I think it's somewhat general knowledge among people who pay attention that there is like a meme ecosystem that exists where a lot of memes start on like 4chan or Reddit um, and then like go to, you know, from 4chan to Reddit and then from Reddit to like Twitter and then eventually to Facebook. Well, it's, it's um, not even a single direction anymore. Like, you know, in that sort of model might've been more true like 10 years ago, but really shit. at this point, you know, there's me, there's sort of just meme centers like Reddit and Twitter being obvious examples, but you know, it, it all gets cross posted, right? There's only a few sites yeah. most people are really going to. Um, you know, 4chan in particular has been really sort of discredited by just the extent of its association with Nazis to the point right. where it's it's not yeah. what it used to be at all anymore. <laughs> um, you know, and it, in, um, in a cultural force kind of way, regardless. Well, I mean, for, of for a long time, like it politics. was, like, you know, I guess we'd probably pre-2010 sort of a weird libertarian bastion online of this very like pro-free speech thing where people had like oh there was like the anti-scientology protest that they like did where it was like yeah we're gonna have all these folks go out and protest the scientologist's church trying to like block uh news documents from being released about you know horrible practices they have in the church um that that was always part of it and that free speech rhetoric also was able to house just outright Nazi propaganda from the beginning. If you know, if you want to talk about propaganda, like Nazis, after being like at war with the federal government for most of the nineties, retreated online. And, you know, part of their strategy for their resurgence was, you know, crafting convincing things in these 
few places that were just completely uncensored. You know, it, it absolutely is a part of the backlash. And if you look at the history of Silicon Valley itself, you know, the industry, the tech industry that's, you know, spawned all this, uh, there's a lot of, uh, white nationalism to go around in its history that they, you know, just don't like to talk about. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. But also, yeah, but I, I think also like a lot of this, you know, um, uh, intentional obfuscation of like, well, we're not talking about uh, racist things or sexist things. We're talking about a free speech issue. And that's where a lot of this kind of like far right propaganda online gets distributed, gets, gets uh, framed. And so it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's not this like old school propaganda of just like, we are saying our beliefs loud somewhere you can hear them. It's, well, no, we're actually talking about free speech and freedom of religion. And you I mean, you saw that with I mean, like the Charlottesville stuff and with like, Patriot well, not, I, I think it makes most sense in terms of analyzing power dynamics, right? So it's, it's top down propaganda versus bottom up propaganda, maybe one way to think about it, right? People think of it in terms of this cold war model of, you know, maybe uh, the government with all these resources is crafting these messages and disseminating them in subliminal and obvious ways throughout society, right? That's one way. Another way is you, as a product of that society, develop certain beliefs and you then use some of your own personal creative labor to construct things that, you know, support your beliefs and disseminate them into the world in whatever way you can. The internet makes the dissemination easier and maybe. Then once it's out there, power picks it up and amplifies it, maybe, depending on what it is. But, you know, it, it, that's sort of the dynamic we're talking about here is like how power relates to this. I think it's very much a like, I mean, that that very is like the, the grassroots model that I think a lot of uh, kind of modern propaganda does come from. But you, there is the astroturfing going on. There's people who are trying to basically make their movements look like these grassroots movements where you do have, you know, muddied interests who are trying to get a political agenda done and are doing that by drumming up this support for what may be um, legitimate complaints. I mean, I think there are like... Legit- you mean like George Soros? Yes, yes, exactly. Funding, like George funding Soros. Antifa? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But stuff like that, where it's you know um, saying like it, it's it's not this actual opposition. Like I don't think there would be really any strong opposition to anti-fascist movements if there wasn't some actual muddied interest going in saying, "Hey, look, all these people are being you know paid by George Soros to threaten yeah. good Christian Americans who are just want to be out here waving flags in a park as I is mean, our the, God-given yeah. right." The, the Which, thing about right-wing propaganda is it's almost always projection because a lot of them aren't very smart. Yeah. So it's like, oh, if uh, <laughs> you know George Soros is doing this, it's because the Koch brothers are doing that, and it's really right. obvious. And we want to be able to say it's a thing about hypocrisy, and both sides are doing it, so it's fair game, right? That's that's what it's about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you seen the folks out like protesting the um, uh, lockdowns who are waving like signs that say stuff? And these like you know, right wing folks. Oh yeah, yeah, they're, they're completely activated by that same Tea Party network. It is, yeah, no, but like they're, they're having yeah. the same like signs, like, like you know, my body, my choice, and has a picture of like an N95 mask on it. And it's like, oh, Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. Like, it, it's. Uh, and so, what level is that, you know, actually being manufactured by someone above them, or what level is it just kind of co opting these, you know, ongoing uh, meme conversations? Well, it's it's got to be a mixture of, of all those things at this point. Um, 
Like because like Donald Trump goes on and says, "All right, people need to go out and and uh, you know liberate these states, right?" And that has a lot of different overtones depending on who you're talking <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, that's a way to put it. Um, but yeah, the, the quasi civil war rhetoric is definitely heating up during the yeah, pandemic. Not not to mention, you know, the the very real material changes on the ground where states are cooperating and sort of like these power blocks in ways that they haven't really done before. So that's um, you know, that's not the. I mean, I personally start civil wars. I personally (laughs) find that part encouraging, though, because like, you know, if the United States were to collapse, which, you know, I personally think is just a matter of when, not if. But yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the, The best thing that could happen in terms of people's lives and safety would be basically just a balkanization of the U S where, <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we just break into a few separate countries that are more coherent than we currently are as a total country. And those, you know, regions are able to maintain relative peace and stability. Now that's the sort of a best case scenario that I don't think is how it would play yeah. out, but um, you know, it, I think, I think it's, in some ways debatable whether that's the best case scenario but sure. um because plenty of those places would still continue to main the power maintain the power relations that still exist oh absolutely but, some of the places that uh, some regions of the country would become worse than they are now worse yeah um and yeah you know it, it's it's um, and just you know best in terms of total human life and misery because the u.s currently exports so much of it instead it would all yeah. be mostly domestic <laughs> and <laughs> that would be a different hey, yeah, you know, bring yeah, jobs home. come on bring the jobs home yeah, yeah. <laughs> let those well, chickens come home and let them roost <laughs> in some ways it's really bringing the war home and not in a way that's all that pleasant um right but that's that's our yeah. destiny like whether it's happening now or 10 years from now or 50 years from now, like that's America's destiny is uh, violent, disgusting collapse. But we we see that being drummed up by folks on the right, both in the sense of um, like Matt Shea up in Oregon, who Matt Shea, is that the right? Washington. Washington, um, who, you know, published this paper that is like legitimately advocating for uh, white supremacist genocide. And on the other side of oh, it, it's you, biblical genocide. Yeah, it's different. Okay, well, but <laughs> but you have that on the other side. You know, these folks like who were like folks were actually on the ground, at, like you know, uh, like the Patriot Prayer stuff, where there are folks who are literally believe that their religious rights are somehow being threatened, and are like, well, we're going to come out here and we're going to wave flags and we're going to pray publicly. And yeah. there's a lot of I want to say just rubes. Who just were like told from some meme online, like hey, we're out here, we're going to defend our religious freedom, and they're like, "My God, I'm going to go do that." And then there's well, a lot of folks behind them who are sitting there with, you know, uh, plate carriers and AR-15s, just thinking to themselves, yeah. "Like, yeah, good, we got these like this this crowd of rubes yeah. around us. The police aren't so, going to do shit." Yeah, well, and the police never do shit. Um, but in a bunch of these photos, I, the uh, armed dudes are wearing masks, and the other people aren't. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, because typically, typically a lot of those people are like smart enough to like realize, okay, if you're going to prepare for all sorts of stuff, then you actually have to take a lot of threats seriously. Um, I I think they normally take a lot of threats far too seriously, but uh, I think, but but a lot of those people who, a lot of the conservative people, the like not quite fascist, but you know, dumb enough to not realize that they're surrounded by fascists. Um, 
Fash like, curious. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, who is it? Is it memes that actually get them out there? Because a lot of those people tend to be in the boomer generation, right? I mean, you, you, and, say, you say memes. I think to bring it back to like theory, it's it's alienation, right? It's it's the fact, that right? Our modern society, everyone is so disconnected from each other in the way we live, in you know, the way our labor goes in it's our rugged lives. individualism. Like, yeah, it, it's it's a way to like you see a flash of something, you see people that agree with you, you latch onto it, right? And like right. the reason it's expressed as white grievance, I think, is mostly because like the quality of life for everyone in America, including white people, is declining, right? And white right. people in all of America's history have never experienced that. So they there's sort of this, if you're an idiot, there's this like assumption like, oh, shit's getting worse. It must be because it's going better for the others. But no, it's just going worse for everyone. The, unless you're talking about like the top 1% of society who is just extracting right. so much resources from every other part of society that it's literally losing its ability to function as a society. Which is why I think there has yeah. been this kind of push from left-leaning sources of trying to reframe a lot of these kind of big societal discourses as like, no, this is actually a class issue. We need to talk about it as a class issue, not a race issue, not a gender issue. Like everyone's affected by it because it is a class issue. And these uh, divider issues end up kind of disguising that. Well, they, they well, all, they all overlap some people on the left do that. They all overlap. Oh, and, oh. and it's, it's, it's in certain people's interest to keep them as separate issues. Right. And it's hard to talk about yeah. the way that they overlap because it's complicated. It takes engagement and like nuanced dialectical thought. You can't just, you know, s- express it in a single meme, a single tweet, right? It, it's more complicated yeah. than that. No, and yeah. I, 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 I want to talk about the, the Virginia gun rights rally they had back in January because that I think was like a prime example of the actual issue was uh, so ginned up. It, it was uh, there was a, uh, a socialist congress member who uh, was someone who kind of helped oversee the rewriting of this bill that prevented um, uh, basically like uh, teachers from going on strike. Lee Carter, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so because of that, he, like the the language changed in the bill to just allow teachers to go on strike because a lot of folks had seen the uh, teachers uh, union protests going on across the country at the time. And we're like, yeah, we want to allow our teachers to actually like protest for better you know, to voice their grievances and actually get, you know, better pay, better materials for the classrooms. And so it created this loophole in an existing Virginia law that said that you can't, um, uh, if you're a public worker, you can't go on strike. Uh, And the way it was phrased, this is an older law, but it was something like, you know, they can't disobey like orders from the state. And what that got twisted by in this kind of right-wing rhetoric was that, well, okay, now what this bill says is that if police are ordered to take away your guns and they say no, they can be arrested for it. And none of that's true. But in theory, you could make a logical argument that, well, yeah, that's what the law had said previously. Nothing changed. That's what the law had said. It's like, yeah, if a public official refuses to obey their orders, they can you know, be cited for it, fired for it, something. And it got like really turned around quickly to being instead of this issue about whether or not teachers can protest to like, nope, these socialists and the Virginia government are going to take away your guns. And that was the message that got spread. And so well, someone who'd been advocating this, this congressman had been advocating for 
teachers' rights suddenly had 50,000 armed people marching on the Capitol building. <laughs> yeah, well, not there was the additional part to that that the uh, the Virginia uh, state government had been largely it had been taken over by Democrats in the recent elections, and they had also introduced a number of gun control measures. Yes, I mean that's that's related, um, and you I mean you see that all yeah. the time. Whenever there's any kind of like democratic surge in any state, then the, yeah. the right wing comes out to say they're going to take away your guns again because that's yeah. Well, uh, and perhaps important to note also that Lee Carter, the openly socialist one that was at the center, as you mentioned, is yeah. uh, more more pro gun than the majority of the Dem caucus. Oh yeah, no, he's a gun owner and yeah. like loves a gun. He loves his guns. He wants yeah. people to own guns. Like he just you know believes as most um, like responsible leftist gun owners do. Like well yeah, you should probably have to like do a background check to make sure you're not like a domestic abuser yeah uh, um, <laughs> a, li- a licensing system like driver's licenses i think would make a lot uh, of sense <laughs> i i disagree but <laughs> uh but i i also think though that uh that that's another propaganda mechanism that the the conservative movement in america deployed right they you know in the 80s they started switching over to social issues as a way to divide people um, and propagandize around. And so that became abortion was the first one and then gun rights as well. Um, mm-hmm. Spurred on by the NRA. Uh, Which means, God, if, transform- if we're talking propaganda, we have to talk about the NRA. Oh, yeah. No, the NRA is, yeah, absolute garbage organization. But uh, like what they did is they took – um, gun rights, which they, they took the issue of gun rights, which like that, that the possession of firearms is a constitutional right. Like that, that's just a reality. That's what it is. Um, and you can debate whether that's a good right to have or not, but like, it is a right that exists in this country. Um, and, uh, the NRA turned it into, helped the conservative movement um, that it was deeply tied to uh, through money and through connections to like manufacturers um, who they largely represented using, um, you know, the the membership fees of people who joined them uh, to uh, block most gun legislation that, you know, basically starting in, in the in the 90s. Um, but their propaganda wing, they had like NRA TV, which I think still exists uh, maybe yeah. Like they they uh, like have done propaganda videos against uh, anti-fascists and uh, sometimes. Oh no, there's uh, that there's that horrifying uh, yeah. one. There's there's one I remember it was maybe ah, three or four years ago, but it's this woman's voice talking about how like they are coming to take away your rights and show yeah. a bunch of like folks like and, and again it's you know it's usual NRA ads it's a bunch of like 50 something year old guys with big burly beards who are like wearing all black and like looking like big yeah. scary you know antifa thugs <laughs> and but it was really like you know it was you know they had these ads they put out where it's like picture of like an ar aimed at a bunch of you know uh folks all dressed in black and this this all yeah. came in the wake of charlottesville so it came in the wake of you know yeah. uh white nationalists killing these anti-fascist protesters and um, the way it was like framed by these nra ads was like we have to defend ourselves against this horde of dangerous anarchists and or communists right. or whatever their scare word of the day yeah. was um um it, it yeah. So another telling thing about propaganda is when it's not deployed. 
So uh, I think it was, I forget the man's name, but he was, he was a black man who uh, legally possessed a, a firearm with a concealed carry permit. And he was uh, in the car with his wife and his, uh, his young daughter in the back seat. Um, and uh, I don't know if he was legally required to do this, but he did tell the officer who had stopped their car uh, that he was illegal. Uh, Philando um, Castile. Philando Castile. Yeah. Um, that he owned the firearm uh, and that he had it on him and he had the permit for it. Um, and without any gestures, without any you know provocation, like it was completely unjustified. Uh, the police officer shot the man uh, in the car. And that's the one you watch the video um, and, of it. It's chilling because it's like his, yeah. his girlfriend in the car next to him trying to calm the officer down and saying, like, yeah. please, I'm talking to you very calmly. You just shot my husband like, or husband or partner. I can't remember who it was. Yeah. Um, but just basically trying to really calm the officer. As the officer is sitting there right. crying, red-faced, angry, screaming, gun aimed through the car. Yeah. It's a horrifying yeah. video. Um, Watch it at your own I mean, discomfort. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that if you if you can tolerate watching it, you should. But um, you know, there there are a number of videos of police officers doing it, and I, and I think there's some value to seeing them so that you can see the reality of what life is like for a lot of people in the U.S. Uh, but the NRA was silent on this. Here was a man who legally owned his firearm, who. Uh, you know, told the officer to do it, which is uh, frequently what gun rights groups uh, recommend people do is tell officers that they have, you know, if they get stopped, that they have a firearm in the car or not. Um, the that I would argue that that is frequently not good advice. But all that aside, uh, NRI was silent, you know, and so that that lack of propaganda, I think, uh you know, speaks a lot to, you know, what, you know, what they really support. Well, cause it goes yeah, against they're, they're the narrative. The right wing death cult. <laughs> they're all part of the right wing. Death yeah. Cult. It's, it's not, it's not just about guns. They just represent the piece of guns in right. the bigger right wing death cult that's taken over America. And right. part of that death cult is white supremacy. So of course they're not going to care if right. someone is murdered by the state that <laughs> is expendable to them. Yeah. Um, and I think in some ways that can also be applied to the democratic establishment and, and sometimes liberals in general who, uh, have for a long time now advocated for gun control, uh, but have usually done it in response to school shootings and, and massacres like mass shootings, which like, we should not have to say this are objectively like, fucking evil should not exist um but also but at the same time, time teenage nazis well no not always i, I was yeah. thinking of like the i only said one frequently that, often, often. <laughs> because one yeah. of the ones actually got you know some kind of one of those like really uh kind of band-aid remedies for you know gun violence in this country which is the the ban of butt stock uh, bump stocks like right. that came after the las vegas shooting which still was just weird because it looks just like some you know pretty wealthy guy just snapped um, you could have a whole podcast on that guy and uh, the various conspiracies around that situation. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but but after I that, like that there, there was this kind of like uh, uh, bipartisan push to like, well, we need to ban these bump stocks because they're insanely dangerous. Right. Look how like evil they are. The guys are able to do this, and it was yeah still played out by it. the NRA as like, look, they're coming for your guns, even though it was this yeah. massive support of like, hey, we all agree people shouldn't have fully automatic weapons, like, right? And so and almost all gun owners like agreed with that, uh, and said, yeah, this is like. It's a dumb thing. It's a novelty item. It's okay to not have these. Yeah. There was some resistance, but and they did it through non-legislative means. Uh, it was through an ATF uh, policy letter that they made it happen. But um, so there, there's that. Um, but I think this also belies the propaganda uh, used by the Democratic Party and by um, liberals that it's on these issues uh, on mass shootings that they, they, you know, that they can use to animate their base. Um, but for the thousands of murders that happen of, uh, like kids of color every day, you know, it's not thousands every day, but you know, in, uh, you know, through time, uh, kids are getting killed, uh, in, you know, poor neighborhoods, uh, kids of color, and we don't really hear anything about that. Unless it's brought uh, up as in any a, way to address what that is. Well, no, unless it's brought up as kind of a right wing talking point of like, well, we're talking about school shootings, so why aren't we talking yeah. about? It's usually yeah. framed as black on black crime is how like a lot of like the right wing right. folks bring it up. Um, well, and and I think this is what really belies the propaganda uh, of liberalism when it comes to guns is that what they see is a real problem, which is that tens of thousands. So it's about 10,000 people are, are murdered with guns each year. Um, they, they swing around the 30,000 number a lot, but 20,000 of those are suicides, uh, which is not to dismiss or minimize them, but it does. That's a different kind of a problem to address. Right. Um, and what it does is it takes the onus off of liberals and Democrats to look at the social problems that lead to violence. Well, um, and it allows them again to kind of I think skirt a lot of, you know, what really are class issues when we really do have, you know, these like, extremely impoverished communities where right. there, there is usually shitty, if any police response where the police will show up and beat the shit out of people. You see the, you know, like, you know Eric Garner, right. where it's, you know, dude selling fucking cigarettes on the street gets choked to death. But you see, yeah, the, poli- like- the police are an occupying force. They're not part of these right. communities. They're they're well, well, so this massive the disproportionate violence. And what you end up seeing then is that this is talked about as a a, a gun issue, um, as right. opposed to being an issue about like, well, no, there are these impoverished communities that have this extremely heavy police presence. That is right. Yeah, it's an occupying force. Yeah, and of those ten thousand murders with guns each year, it's between ten and fifteen percent of them are committed by police. Um, so, you know, in the in the course of their duties, so, uh, you know, that's a significant portion. But it also, you know, there's a lot of talk about oh well, we need to increase mental health, which seems to be the first time Republicans have ever cared about the mental health care system. <laughs> and the and the um, only time because as soon as the, yeah. the bad press about the shooting is over, they stop caring again. Right, and you know the mental health care system. You know, ha- having an actual functional mental health care system would reduce gun deaths, not necessarily the homicides, but the suicides. 
that make up two thirds of gun deaths uh, in the U.S. every year. Um, but again, like you're not going to stop those by banning assault, you know, semi-automatic rifles. Uh, you're going to do that by getting people the care they need. Uh, and you also have to address the economic conditions that lead to people being in those positions. And, and where there are like usually well agreed on kind of like baby steps you can take, like longer waiting periods to buy a firearm. That actually reduces suicide. Like if folks have like a uh, three day waiting period before they get yeah. the gun, there is, it's shown, like it makes someone wait a little longer. It's less likely they're going to just go buy a gun and then shoot themselves. You, you add right. some delay. Well, I, I don't know the numbers on that, but I, it does sound reasonable. I mean, for what it's worth, I have a, a lot of family members that are mental health professionals, and so I'm pretty versed in that world. And they're all uh, among the most anti-gun people I know, just for whatever that's worth. I'm not as anti-gun as they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, there could be a sort of sample bias there in the sense that, like, a lot of people who go into mental health care also tend to be more likely to be uh, liberal. For sure, um, for sure, and and so probably had a lot of those views before going in. Um, that, that's definitely part of to, it, but I think part yeah, of it is also just, minimize it, just seeing that you know it, it's what it is that guns are a tool that facilitate this thing, right? So like if you have, yeah. it's like uh, you were say, um, Trevor was saying a minute ago, a waiting period makes a huge difference because it's a if it's right. a mental health crisis and you basically, you know, mentally regulate yourself again, you no longer want to kill yourself. Yeah. You no longer need a gun. And, you know, yeah. really no one quote unquote needs a gun in theory. Uh, we, right? we can all, we can all disagree <laughs> well, on that. But, so like, but, the, but that's exactly it though, is I, I see some of that talk as the kind of pro, you know, as, as sort of the propaganda around it. Do people need one? Most people don't. That's true. But, um, most people don't need their, you know, don't need a lot of things that they have. Right. Um, yeah, exa- but all, exactly. all that aside, though, is that like it gets down to a discussion of power. And I think that's what a lot of the propaganda around guns avoids talking about is that. Right. And, and that's that's what liberals are, don't want to get into because they're afraid right. of power, because gun, yeah. like there's not going to be any change in the system that's peaceful because capital will use violence right. to protect its interests right and right. so like part of the successful propaganda of like the last half of the 20th century was like you know changing what like the civil rights and anti-war movements represented into this sort of you know Disneyland version of what they were where oh Martin Luther King was just so nice and respectful that everyone came around to his side which is like yeah. not how it really happened at all of course yeah um, and you know he well going back to the propaganda thing there I think there is this way that a lot of these discourses get framed um especially kind of adversarial discourses when you talk about you know uh like how civil rights movement was framed and historically now it's looked back on as you know like well there are these people who just really goddamn believed in equality and freedom and everyone should just be treated the same and yeah that was part of it but there also were you know uh, targeted disruptions of capital targeted disruptions of capital (laughs) well and the idea of you know like people pushing for like you know essentially like a a, not not like a, a black ethno state but like you know a organizations in the u.s that were like well this is going to be focused on black communities we're going to make all of our economic interest here focused on that and it gets wiped away because instead of talking about that instead of talking about it in this sort of more class-based structure and how things actually work like material yeah it's just material ends up talking about kind of this general 
uh, yeah, feel good mentality of like, yeah, we're, we're all actually equal. That's what the founders really had in mind back in the day. Now we're just finally actualizing what America was built on. Uh, yeah, they they put enough <laughs> leaders of the Black Panthers in jail that they could, you know, pretend that they were actually some yeah. sort of like totally violent insurrectionist organization instead of just right. a mutual aid organization that was wildly right. successful and understood that police were like not part of their community. Yeah. Well, and, and that that yeah. sort of framing has come up in propaganda throughout like you know history. There's um uh the oh god it's it was it's it's an Irish story. It's the the wild fighting cats of Kilkenny. And it's um, this uh, story that was told both by like uh, British uh, occupying troops in Ireland and uh, Irish like you know fighters who were fighting against those British troops, and both sides had the same story, which is that the other side has this barbaric practice they're engaged in. They take two cats, tie them together by their tails, and throw them over like a fence post or something like that, or like a clothesline, and they take bets and they watch the cats claw each other to death. And it's a horrible story, and there's no real historical basis for anyone doing that. But both sides during this you know, conflict over the uh, town of Kilkenny were basically saying, like, well, no, the other side does that. Like, look how monstrous they are. Look how barbaric <laughs> they are. They are doing this wild cat fighting bullshit. And I think that same thing yeah. gets brought up now, where instead of, like, the, the, both sides are like, well, the other side, look how insanely deranged violent they are. And that's why you get stories, you know, about, you know, uh, anarchists putting concrete in milkshakes to throw at people <laughs> where or, or the bike lock thing that's always brought up with Antifa. Yeah. Where it's like, well, there was this one time where someone took a bike lock and hit somebody. And it's like, yeah, the other side's firing guns into crowds like. <laughs> yeah. And, or and running cars like. Don't get yeah. me started on the car thing, because right now with all the fucking like right wing dudes in Michigan blocking fucking uh, hospital access because they want yeah. to go get fucking lawn seed. Yeah, it's no, evil. it's it's, e- yeah, it's evil when you have it's... actual like doctors coming out and crying and pleading with them. They're, they're videos. You can find the video. You can find right. the videos, folks. Um, uh, <laughs> but no, but like, you know, the, you can see that it's like, yeah, the one thing that the right has said for years of why it's OK to run over people who are blocking traffic. Right. Is, well, what if and an it, emergency vehicle came by? And now as soon as yeah. they have this little reduction in their freedom where it's like, well, you can't go out and get your fucking hair done today. Sorry. Like, well, we're actually going to actively block ambulances. Give me liberty or give me death. You get both, guys. <laughs> <laughs> give me liberty or give me the rota. Fuck it. Um. <laughs> yeah. It's – yeah, I, I mean I has it like – we definitely see that kind of both sides thing, but I also think that you can just look at the state of violence going on. And I would say that objectively the right wing is far, far, far more violent. But, but, but but, yeah, I mean, yes, that's true. But at the same time you have the thing where, you know, uh, they're able to have this, you know, Virginia gun rights protest where they are marching. I think it was like 20,000 people, 20,000 armed people, 50,000 total, about 20,000 armed marching on a Capitol building and the rhetoric leading up to it from like liberal folks was like, Oh my God, it's going to be this like revolutionary bloodbath. And no, it was never going to be the entire point of this was them to march with a shitload of guns to just show, Hey, look, 
we're not violent. We're responsible gun owners because they know the mythos yeah. is going to be spread by the other side saying like, look how crazy and violent they are. And for them, yeah, that's a propagandistic victory when they can actually point at it and say, hey, look, right. we weren't violent. Or when there's well, there are three photos I've seen of people of color at that protest carrying guns. And those three photos have been wildly circulated amongst right wing groups being like they keep yeah. calling us a bunch of white nationalists for margin. But look, here are these yeah, people. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, it also it, is drawing attention away from the true American violence, which is abroad, right? We have military bases in dozens, if not more countries and oh, yeah. wars in like active hot zones in like what, 12 yeah. different countries, right? You know, it's, uh, it's crazy. Well, it's well, it depends on how you want to define I, active like, war like, zone. <laughs> in in, I, in just the 21st century, say, our government by itself explicitly not even implicitly through economic reins like we've killed millions of people <laughs> you know like yes. it's um <laughs> and i and i would like also say that like when we talk about true violence it's like especially because the us is a imperial colonial state um, a lot of the methods it deploys abroad also are deployed um, domestically. Well, we're seeing that so, now. Like, well, we're seeing basically the threat of embargoes to states where we're having, you know, the federal government saying, well, the, the, the whole yeah. comment about, you know, the, this, well, this federal stockpile of ventilators and PPE, that's not yours. That's ours. Yeah. And that in the sense so that, is a fucking blockade of like necessary medical equipment yeah. to states they don't like. And we've seen the same thing abroad. We yeah. see that right now where there's people in Tehran who are begging us to just raise some fucking sanctions so that they can get medical equipment. We see it all the time right. with fucking Gaza. We yeah. see consistently the support and, for the like Israeli blockades in Gaza where it's like people there are dying because they don't have medical care. And we're just blockading. Yeah. We're, we're, we're helping facilitate the blockade. Of yes. That. Stopping medical supplies yeah. is straight up evil, right? It's yes. there's no it's violence. Like, it, you, yeah, you exactly. violence. The, the political justification that's used for blocking medical supplies is essentially, oh, it will pressure those governments to collapse because the people will be so unpopular. No, that's, yeah. that's a shitty fucking theory so, of how to change governments because it's yeah. all about power. And if the people have no power because the government is able to repress them and hoard all the medical supplies for itself – guess what? The government's not going to change. It's just going to get worse, which is also yeah. part of what they want so that you can then justify literal military intervention, killing right. enough people that you can then put your people in charge and not have the pushback yeah. or you hope, <laughs> you know? It's, yeah. Yeah. And it, it, uh, it, that, that particular kind of theorizing uh, has a long history, even with like during actual wartime with the use of aerial bombing as a war strategy uh so if you look back, oh yeah firebombing uh, so dresden yeah like one of the um not not just the firebombing but aerial bombing as a strategy at all yeah. um so you had yeah the firebombing of dresden and tons of firebombing in japan oh yeah uh, in addition to the nuclear bombs but also um you know the u.s and britain dropped huge numbers of bombs across Germany and Italy. Mm -hmm. um, and the stated goal by Churchill, at least, was that uh, if you drop enough bombs, then the people of Germany will get sick enough of it that they will rise up against their own leader. It's the same idea with the V2s. The V2s were not designed um, to be incredibly destructive when they yeah. hit the UK. It was designed to be demoralizing. 
Yeah. And, and well, again, and it, be, because America's empire is racist, all our worst experiments in this have taken place in other places. Like, you know, Korea and Cambodia are still right. to this oh, day. Jesus, yeah, up, Cambodia. Like, landmines, you know, like, right. it's... And we're right. going to have we're going to have a future episode on Cambodia, <laughs> le- leading through Our, why Kissinger is one of the worst people uh, in history. Bring, bring me through. bring me back for that since I've been to Cambodia. I, yeah, we'd love to have you on for that experience. Oh, right. Bring me back on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, like, I'll, to to bring it back, reel it a bit back into propaganda is that you know we have those like justifications for uh, sanctions, justifications for aerial bombing as a strategy. Uh, and so those are used for, you know, foreign, uh, foreign oppression by the, the U S government. And then we also have these internal sanctions that are essentially being essentially internal sanctions being levied by the federal government against states they don't like. Um, so, uh, and I, and I think that gets back to really the major the major propaganda message that we have going on in in the U.S. and and in, and in Europe and probably through the whole world is that almost all of our propaganda that exists is trying to cover up the reality that we live in a society that and we do uh, live in a society. On this kind of, if if I could well, uh, if I can make a brief, I'm still not convinced of that. If but, I can make a brief plug um, here, uh, everyone in on this talk and anyone listening should watch the film Hypernormalization by Adam Curtis. It was originally produced for the BBC and originally released in October, 2016. It's free to watch on the internet gets into a lot of this stuff, but like the main point it's making like it's overarching theme is the fact that our society is built upon lies. Essentially. We know that yeah. it's built upon lies. In fact, we know that everyone is lying to us all the time, but we can't imagine what comes next? We can't imagine a society without the lies, so we're paralyzed. We don't right. know what to do. And I want to tie this actually full circle really fast because the, uh, we talked briefly about you know uh, blockades, specifically Gaza. We talked about you know being lied to all the time in society. We talked about um, like elections in you know the UK, and I want to talk about the Jeremy Corbyn anti-Semitism claims because a lot of his yeah. actual arguments that were reframed as this is purely anti-Semitic were discussions about like well we need to treat the Palestinians like actual people. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of it was also just guilt by association, right? It's like right. In, in polite society, if you're opposing, you know, a, a lot of people that oppose Israel have delved into anti-Semitism historically. And, you know, that's because it's in Israel's political interest for Judaism and Israel to be conflated because it makes it harder to politically oppose Israel. Um, you know, it's it. That's a political choice of the government of Israel, represented by the Likud party in particular, which you know, Netanyahu's been in charge of for 25 years. But you know, <laughs> if, if you want to talk about the British relationship with Israel and Judaism, you can really. It, it's really fundamental to labor, and that's part of like why it was such a big deal for Corbyn because in the early 20th century there was this huge exodus of Jews from Eastern Europe into America and the UK. And those Jews in the UK were a huge part of the original labor party that was formed. They were of like a foundational block of that party. And in the post-war period, an instrumental part of how the British government oversaw the creation of Israel, because 
you know, and keep in mind also Israel's government in those days until, you know, the late 70s, probably depending on your markers, but it was a socialist government, you know, it provided for its people, all these socialist policies. And it was, you know, ethno-socialism certainly, but it had these leftist allegiances it was able to make that over time changed, you know, in, in the eighties in particular, as Israel's government went right, you started to see the labor party membership in the UK turn against Israel a little bit. And, you know, it it was no, like, there's no clear delineation here, but one thing I want to point out in talking about like, you know, Jewish support for labor or whatever is uh, the leader of labor before Corbyn was Ed Miliband, who was Jewish or is Jewish. You know, he still is. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> he didn't get like cut up with it. Yeah. But but so 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 two points about Ed Miliband. One to understand what shambles labor was in before Corbyn is the leadership election where Ed Miliband won. He beat his brother David Miliband. So that's one thing. That's okay. <laughs> uh, but okay. also. In the 2015 election that Miliband lost and, you know, led to a new leadership election, uh, Labour got only 15% of Jewish support in the UK and the Tories got like 60 something percent. So like, it's not, whatever you want to say about it, like clearly the Jewish population of the UK is just politically more right leaning than we're used to thinking of like the Jewish community in America, for example, right? That's just the baseline. So then if you get into Corbyn specifically, you know, there's a lot you can talk about, especially with this labor report that just came out. But most of the stuff is essentially guilt by association. It's Corbyn appearing on stage or promoting people who themselves said things which were, yes, anti-Semitic and disgusting and objectionable in some cases. But, you know, Corbyn himself, his failure was basically in the PR of dealing with it in not showing appropriate sensitivity to people's concerns about it and not like apologizing and handling it well in certain cases. Right. I, I mean, that's, that's the there, objective is, read of it. Is right? there a good parallel that can be drawn to the whole idea of like Bernie Sanders, not properly um, uh, calling out the Bernie bro? No, it's, 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 it's not the same thing. I mean, because like we're talking about a relatively small amount of you know, the, like the Labor Party works just completely differently than the Democratic Party, right? It's an right. actual membership-based political organization, right? So, you know, it has however many members it has, and in the process of examining its anti-Semitism, it actually expelled a few hundred people for like anti-Semitic things they'd done. But that amounted to something like you know, point zero one percent of the Labor Party being expelled. And to right. get into this Labor report that's been in the news lately. Part of what it shows happened is when there was this spike in anti-Semitism complaints um, for you know various valid reasons amongst the invalid ones, the Blairite people who were still in Labour's leadership actively obfuscated the resolution of the anti-Semitism complaints because they knew they could be a cudgel to make Corbyn look worse. And, and it, was it designed to be sort of this, like, kind of try and make him play ball, try and, like, make him, like, hey, you gotta, you know... No, no, no. So, so, so what... Again, this this Labor report, it's it's might destroy the Labor Party. We can get into it, like, at whatever depth you guys want. But, like, basically, what it shows, while ostensibly being about the anti-Semitism crisis within the party, 
is that there's, you know, the two factions within the party, which you might call the left Corbin faction and the right Blair faction, broadly okay. speaking. And the right wing faction in the period from Corbin when Corbin was elected in late 2015 up until the general election in 2017 actively undermined him at every turn to the point where they were trying to cause labor to lose that election. And the actual result of that election was that labor gained seats and just barely not enough seats to take control of the government. If they hadn't been actively undermining the party, there's a very good chance that labor would have won that election. And, you know, we're t- there, the right wing of labor's plan was explicitly they wanted him to lose that election badly so that they could have a new leadership election install Tom Watson, who was their like preferred guy, you know, and they wanted to change the labor membership system. So Corbyn got elected because each labor member gets one vote on who the leader is, right? So they have a leadership election. Corbyn well, won overwhelmingly. Fair. One man, one vote. You know. He won overwhelmingly twice before 2017 because when he first won, they were just like, oh, this was a fluke and immediately made them redo it. And he still won, right? And so after 2017, they wanted him to lose and replace him. And then when he was replaced, they wanted to change the voting system to be an electoral college. <laughs> oh, God. Well, hey, that works as far wow. as we've seen, you know, historically in the last explicitly, you know. explicitly to prevent left wing people from winning. So, like, that's how <laughs> electoral colleges are viewed by political scientists. You know? yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Maybe hell, we've fucking yeah. seen that here. I mean, that's not really a, right. up for much debate. Um, yeah, but so, I mean, to, to get, sort of get back to propaganda, like the British press, like, first of all, there's no first amendment in the UK. So like they're operating under just completely different rules where, you know, the government right. in the, for, in the legal authority of the queen can stop them from saying certain things. But in practice, what it is, is you know, similar to the America, there's a few right wing oligarchs that basically control most of the major media sources. Yeah. And, um, you know, thus propagate very right wing narratives about most things. And then there's a period during the elections, which in the UK is only a few weeks where they have to be more balanced. Oh God, that sounds so nice. (laughs) and, And usually, and what happened in 2017 was when they had to be more balanced, labor had this huge surge and almost won and probably would have had they not been undermined in all these ways that have now been exposed and all the lawsuits about how it was exposed is, you know, might literally destroy the labor party. You might see it actually just become two separate parties depending on how this all plays out. Okay. Hmm. But uh, yeah, so so Boris is a uh, Boris is gonna be like around. Little little background thought of like, mm, boy, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, uh, but Boris is still around, and that's sad. Oh yeah, virus didn't take him from us. We can we offered dream. him up. <laughs> we can do. Yeah, like we needed another like multi gender bathroom, but <laughs> it's, uh, we'll have to wait. <laughs> but so I, I guess my question then is like you know what we've seen with the Labour Party uh, report that has come out, and mm-hmm. honestly, kind of what we saw in uh, 2016 in the U.S. with the um, the release of internal documents from the Democratic Party from the DNC um, showing mm-hmm. that there was um, some level of concerted effort to prevent Bernie Sanders from getting more 
Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, the, the British example definitely works. shows what would have happened had Bernie somehow pulled out a nomination in 2016 or 2020, which is that certain forces within the Institutional Democratic Party would have worked to see him lose so that, you know, their faction could be ascendant again. Like that absolutely right. would have happened. And, you know, it's interesting maybe as a thought exercise to be like, who could be brought around because they're malleable and who is a true believer in, uh, you know, centrist third way politics. But at the end of the day, like they're all, they're all buckling to Biden's insane right wing shit. That's going to lose. Yeah. 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 And like, and even in the primary, like my understanding at least is that the, you know, the sudden dropping out of all the other moderate, I quote moderate, um, politicians in the in the primary and then all of them endorsing within a day like my understanding is that that was largely engineered by barack obama oh yeah barack obama called so, people to judge when he was on his airplane to texas and told him to drop out yeah. and endorse joe and he rerouted to south bend and did just that and who knows what they were promised because yeah a biden presidency is certainly not guaranteed and they can't be stupid no. enough to not know that <laughs> you know I don't know. Yeah, I think some of them are deluded enough to believe that it's a real possibility, but, um, you know, but, but yeah. But, I mean, pulling this all back to propaganda, I mean, but how much of this concerted effort against um, leftist candidates, specifically I'm, I'm thinking Bernie Sanders, like how much of that so is to create this narrative? I, of it, like, So, so here, here's an important takeaway from this for me in terms of the American context is the Democratic base, like the voters of Democratic Party, and just yeah. how susceptible they are to propaganda. Because essentially what you saw in this cycle, this particular cycle, was Bernie Sanders hitting around 30% of the total electorate everywhere. Yeah. And like among people under 50, he was hitting even above like 50% in a lot of places. But yeah. What you saw was that he couldn't change that number. And the reason was because mainstream media was completely persistently hostile to Bernie in basically every way they could be subtle and yeah. unsubtle. Right. I mean, and so being yeah. that they just you know, didn't discuss him for a while. He was literally left off of polls. They would show. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I, yeah. But then he was minimalized. Oh, is where, part of it. Well, and he was minimalized where people would say like, well, I mean, yeah, sure. He's, you know, he's a front runner right now. But what if all the other Democratic candidates all just, you know, got yeah. inside of a trench coat well, together and you know like, <laughs> and, and effectively, the effectively that, that's what happened is biden yeah, tripped right. over his own dick through the first few states just did absolutely like dog shit dog shit yeah Th there was there yeah. was a direct intervention of certain elders within the party certain people got together including we know for sure jim Clyburn, who knows who else and helped you know make sure he won south carolina comfortably and you can blame some yeah. of that on Bernie's campaign doing like insufficient outreach to like the right, you know, kissing, not kissing the right rings or whatever, you know. But aside from that, after yeah. that happened, you just saw everyone go, OK, like he beat Bernie somewhere. Clearly no one else has done that. Get behind him because we can't have Bernie. Like that's what happened. Like, yeah. Well, I, I, I think this, like, this was Biden. all like this was all like set. It was kind of set up to work this way, even if that wasn't necessarily the full plan to begin with. Right. Um, through propaganda and and especially uh, the phrase, I mean, the phrase that I think that is iconic of it is vote blue no matter who. Right. Um, right. Which is like, 
uh, that's basically setting up the propaganda narrative that if Joe Biden loses, then you can blame it on the you know on the Bernie Bros who didn't come out to vote. Right. Um, but the thing is, which, it, was, which, it was always deemed acceptable for these kind of more like aged like uh, liberal boomers to be like, well, I'm not going to vote for a socialist. No matter what, I'd rather take Trump yeah. over a socialist. It was always acceptable for them to do that, despite right. the whole like narrative of vote blue no matter who. Yeah, it was like, well, I'm gonna vote well, no matter so, who, but that's really it was used as a cudgel against Bernie I mean, supporters. You, you really exactly. can't underestimate the generational divide in this too, and I think that gets to the propaganda as well. Is like, you know, y- the younger you are, the less likely you you were to be able to fall in line and support Joe Biden, the more likely you were to support Bernie Sanders, right? And it part of that is right. because young people don't watch cable news at all. And I mean, speaking yeah. as someone who is, you know, thirty, why would why would you watch cable news for your news? Like it's awful. It's, oh God. it's awful. Oh, yeah, as no, a news it's source. dog shit. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, um, you know, like literally, if you just take an hour to carefully curate a Twitter feed of like news outlets, <laughs> like not even personalities, just outlets yeah. and just read what, like look at their posts and click on the ones that seem interesting. That would be yeah. a healthier news diet than an hour of cable news. Like yeah, easily. Absolutely. <laughs> and it, and it's, it's kind of a, uh, an, I, an ironic difference between older generations and younger ones that younger people are more likely to actually read their news. Yeah. Um, completely it is ironic yeah no because it's well i think (laughs) and part of that we do have to recognize the fact that we are all brain poisoned people who spend too much time uh looking at politics in the news um for sure yeah it's not a bad thing i think people need to do that but a lot of folks in our generation don't do that but they just get their news then from you know online sources and and memes they you know they yeah they find some pro bernie sanders like web page or or more so probably like like an anti pete Buttigieg web page and just like yeah it's funny we like it it's like goofy and real topics get yeah. dropped in there occasionally but it's also I mean that is propaganda for the left but it is sure. uh, I think it's easier for our generation to see that as propaganda for the left and not just see it as like, I mean, well, it's real news. It's like, no, it's memes online. Come well, on. Well, to, to some, yeah. Well, to some degree, like that whole push uh, when we were like school age to do like critical thinking skills and shit, like it actually paid off. And, and, and now like old people have to deal with the results of that. Well, it's, it's partially flaws in like the model of approaches to journalism too. Like I took journalism yeah. classes when I was in school and like, they always talk about objectivity and how you, you know, need to be perfectly objective, present all sides equally and all that. But the reality, like the lived reality of the world is that like objectivity is like a fake concept when we talk about reporting the yeah. news, right? Because like literally which facts you choose to include can be influenced by ideology and everyone has an right. ideology and like a smart news consumer essentially says, here's the news. They fall in these ideologies. I understand they have these ideologies and I'm going to make my own conclusions because of that. Like I'm capable of reading Fox news, understanding that lots of these things are not true or not framed in an honest way, but still able to yeah. see, okay, here's the point they're making. Here's why, you know, that's, that's a, an informed nuanced approach to the news. Whereas these boomers were sort of, and you know, that's using maybe too broad a brush, but a lot of people well, like it's a state of mind. You, yeah, the state of mind of being a boomer. Exactly. You're you you think news is supposed to be objective, and to you, objective 
is subjective, right? So news that doesn't fit your subjectivity is not objective news. And that's essentially what's happened to most people who are mostly not very engaged in the news. Most people don't engage in things beyond the surface level. And so, you know, how things are presented at the surface level becomes very important. Yeah. 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 And I think that's just kind of like uh, the, the, I think it's just the effect of propaganda is how far are people willing to look past what they just the very bare bones of what they are fed and see what lies behind it or try try and do some actual critical um, thinking about what lies behind it. Like who is telling me this story? What are their motivations? What might they be trying yeah, to influence me I mean, toward? And that all takes a lot of energy too. Um, you know, so there are a lot of psychological things going on, right? You have like cognitive dissonance and then, uh, like uh, biases, you know, like confirmation bias, right? That all play into that. Um, and then also how long someone has been propagandized. So one thing that I try to hold it, I try not to hold it against the boomer generation is that they've been indoctrinated into this shit for decades. Whereas the rest of us, you know, so like millennials, we we grew up and like, you know, there was 9-11 and, and you know, two two wars that we knew of. Uh, and then the Great Recession. And so to us, it's like, okay, the world is shit. There's no denying that we can't trust anybody who tells us it isn't shit. Yeah. And, and so I think part of it is the medium, too. And, and there's an interesting comparison here where, you know, the boomer generation was sort of raised alongside the medium of television and has like right. grown and aged and devolved with it. And for us, it's basically <laughs> the same with the internet and whatever replaces the internet, I'm sure will be very slow to adapt to as well. Oh, just pure mind streaming. Maybe. Get a little I, mean, USB port I already, in the back of your I already head. feel like I'm old because I don't like Twitter. So, <laughs> and, w- and won't be on it at all. So <laughs> it's already happening. <laughs> Plenty of olds on Twitter. They, uh, uh, agent got nothing to do with Twitter. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, I think uh, I think that this is kind of a good end uh, to to this episode. Is there anything you you want to add? Uh, nothing I can think of at the moment. Um, just want to say, Simon, thanks for coming on. Uh, it was great having you on. We'll hopefully have you on for some later episodes. Anytime, boys. Uh, yeah. Anytime. Definitely want to do that. Um, so otherwise. Uh, Thanks for joining us on this long road. uh, We don't know where we're going. But we'll get there together. We'll get there together. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, guys.